Chapter Four, Part Twenty One of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Route Trial, Part Twenty One of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in December 2018. Now, there is another point made. You know, you have to think of these things as you can, and step on them, and then go on. Another point is made, and it was urged by Mr. Bliss day after day, and what is that? That Mr. Brady took the affidavits of all these men as absolutely true that he allowed them to fix the limit of the money that they would take out of the treasury, that he allowed interested men to make affidavits, and then he took the affidavits as absolutely true, that he allowed the contractors themselves to fix the sum they would seize. Now let us see what that is. Mr. Brady swears that he regarded the affidavit as the honest opinion of the man who made it, but not as necessarily true, that he had a standard of his own. Your views upon all such questions, gentlemen, will depend upon which side of human nature you stand, whether you are a believer in total depravity, or whether you think there is a little virtue left in human nature. If you stand on the side of suspicion, if you allow the snake of prejudice to forever whisper in your ear, why, your idea will be that every man is a rascal, and whenever he does a decent action you will say, this action is a little velvet in the paw for the purpose of covering the claw of some devilment that he has in store. If you judge from that side, you can torture any act, no matter what it is, into evidence of guilt. But you may judge from the other side and say that men, as a rule, are decent, that they would rather do a kind act than a mean thing, that they would rather tell the truth than tell a lie. I tell you today that there is an immensity of good in human nature. There are hundreds and thousands and millions of men today who are honest, who would not for anything stain the whiteness of their souls with a lie. They are laboring men, it may be, working by the day for a dollar or a dollar and a half, and only taking enough of it to keep life and strength in their bodies, and giving the rest to wife and child. And there are battles as grand as were ever won by a celebrated general, and just as bravely fought, with poverty day after day, and the man who fights the battles gains the victory, and goes down to the grave with his manhood untarnished. You know it, and so do I. And yet you are all the time told to suspect everything, no matter what it is. There is a flower there, ah, but there is a snake under it always making that remark, accounting for every decent-looking action by a base motive. That is not my view of human nature. Now Mr. Brady says that he has a standard of his own, that he let these men make their statements, and he took their statements as being what they believed to be the truth, and why not? Suppose I say to a man, what will you take for that horse? And the man says, that horse is worth a hundred dollars. Suppose he goes and swears to it, that would not make any difference in the price I would give for the horse, not a bit. You see, I am not buying an affidavit, I am buying a horse. 
so when brady says to the contractor what will you carry the mail at six miles an hour for and the man says twenty five thousand dollars and he swears to it brady is not buying the affidavit it is the service if he does not believe the service is worth that much he says i can't do it and that is all but they say no that is not what brady did now as a matter of fact there are nineteen routes in this indictment and i believe eighteen of them were expedited i have made a calculation for the purpose of showing that the amount to be paid was a matter of bargain that it was a matter talked over between the parties that it was a result of agreement and that mr brady did not take the affidavit as the actual amount and that they were not bound to take the amount that he actually said now i have deducted what was allowed from what could have been allowed on the affidavits and i find that the price did not depend upon the affidavits i find that there was a difference between the amount called for by the affidavits and the amount granted of over three hundred thousand dollars and yet these gentlemen say to you that brady allowed the men who made the affidavits absolutely to fix the amount gentlemen that will not do it was a matter of agreement a matter of bargain the same as any other agreement or any other bargain now gentlemen suppose they had had a conspiracy and said we want to get all the money we can out of the treasury they would have agreed upon a percent they would have had all those affidavits showing substantially the same percent wouldn't they because they would have wanted harmony in it they would have said it won't do for you to make an affidavit on that route with one thousand two hundred percent on this route five hundred on that route with two hundred and twenty percent and on the other route three hundred and forty percent that won't do that is nonsense we are in a conspiracy and we want all these things to agree and harmonize and the result would have been that they would have had about the same percent in all those affidavits and yet those affidavits vary in percent all the way from two hundred and twenty to one thousand two hundred they say result of conspiracy i do not look at it in that way it is also claimed that the persons who sold out that is to say john m peck and john w dorsey agreed to make the necessary papers that the other parties required that being so why should not affidavits have been made in blank now i ask you if the other parties were willing to swear to anything that these men would write why were they made that way why not avoid the suspicious circumstance of blanks and put the amount in at first knowing that these men would not hesitate to swear of what use was it gentlemen to have an affidavit suspiciously made to have blanks suspiciously left when the men were willing to swear to any numbers they would put in why did not the parties who made the affidavits write in the amounts does not that very fact that blanks were left show that they were to take the judgment of the men who were to do the swearing why would they leave blanks why did they not fill them up at the time and have them sworn to why were they not continuously written that is another point if this was a conspiracy guilt is always conscious that it is guilty guilt is always suspecting detection guilt is infinitely suspicious 
guilt would make all the papers as nearly right as possible guilt would look out for erasures guilt would abhor blots guilt would have avoided having blanks filled in with different colored inks guilt would want everything fitting everything else nothing to excite suspicion innocence is negligent the man with honest intentions is the one who does not care but the guilty man does not travel in the snow he wants no tracks left now another thing the fact that no effort was made to have the affidavits in the same handwriting, no effort to have the blanks apparently filled in at the same time, that they were interlined, that there were erasures, all those things tend to show that the parties were honest in what they did. It was just as easy to have one without an erasure as with it. It was just as easy to have one continuously written as to have the blanks filled up just as easy to have one without any interlineations as with it and yet these parties knowing that they were conspirators according to these gentlemen mr brady occupying a high and responsible position were so careless of their reputations that they did not even endeavour to make the papers passable upon their face another thing these very routes were investigated by congress in eighteen seventy eight this very business if the parties at that time had been conscious of guilt why weren't any suspicious papers left on file why were not others substituted that had no suspicious interlineations no suspicious erasures no suspicious blanks that had been filed why were these very affidavits at that time reported to congress the first investigation was in eighteen seventy eight and on account of that investigation the contractors for about a month and a half were left then there was another investigation in eighteen eighty mr merrick is there any evidence that they were all reported to congress mr ingersoll i think so i think that is here in the record i understand the evidence to be that it was all reported to congress mr merrick the investigation of eighteen eighty was general and not as to these particular routes mr ingersoll in eighteen seventy eight there was a special investigation growing out of these clendenning bonds and out of the peck bids and out of the connection that they said stephen w darcy had with this business that is what it grew out of now in the light of that investigation let us take it for granted for one moment that according to their statement the parties had conspired if anything on earth would make them afraid about papers i think it would have been that investigation and yet no effort was made to conceal one not the slightest then we will go another step general brady was second assistant postmaster general all these papers were absolutely in his power he could have called for them at any time every suspicious paper could have been destroyed or an unsuspicious one substituted for it now i want to know if it is conceivable that general brady under these charges when the new administration came in under the threat of the government would voluntarily leave those papers upon the files if they had been dishonest and he knew it take another step so far as we have learned from the prosecution i believe there is one paper claimed by them to have been lost they do claim that there was a second affidavit on the bismarck and tongue river route one is gone and one remains 
which remains the affidavit for one hundred and fifty men and one hundred and fifty horses it seems to me absolutely capable of demonstration that we did not take the one that is gone had we been going to take anything we would have taken the one for one hundred and fifty men and one hundred and fifty horses and left the other one but the other about which nobody ever did complain was taken and the one upon which they built their great argument of fraud upon that route was left and then it turned out that general brady only allowed forty per cent of that affidavit now this prosecution was not begun in a moment it was talked about for weeks and months i might say almost for years talk 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 in the papers everywhere these men were not suddenly charged with this offence they understood it they knew it i think i have been engaged in this suit or suits growing out of this business for two years it was a matter of slow growth mr brady retired i believe some time in april eighteen eighty one knowing at that time that these charges had been made and that the charges were being pressed mr dorsey knew it at the same time all these defendants knew it now they say that at that time we were in conspiracy with mr brady and they say that at that time we were in conspiracy with mr turner we had the papers in our power now if mr dorsey was wicked enough to conspire if mr brady was villainous enough to conspire i ask you whether they would have left behind the evidence of their conspiracy why were the papers left because general brady never dreamed that one of them was dishonest why did not vale and minor john w dorsey and peck and stephen w dorsey ask for the papers because they believed every one to be honest and they had no use for them they were willing that the government should make out of them what it could i ask again is it conceivable that john r minor if he knew there was on the files of the department a petition that he had changed that he had erased that he had interlined or forged is it conceivable if he had been wicked enough to enter into the conspiracy that he would have been foolish enough to leave the paper there would he not have gone to brady and said to him i conspired you know it i changed the petition and i want it i erased a word in the petition i want it i signed a name to the petition i want it and brady would have said yes and you ought to have called for it long ago you can have it if s w dorsey had interlined an affidavit or had filled a blank if s w dorsey had made an erasure or an interlineation he of course must have known it and if he conspired with brady he must have known it and he must have gone to general brady and said i want that affidavit on such a route we can write another and i want that i want that petition and it would have been given you cannot conceive of such infinite stupidity as to say that those people knew that those papers were dishonest and they still left them on file as weapons for their enemies you cannot do it so much gentlemen for the affidavits and so much for the papers now there is another question and i have no doubt that you have asked it yourselves it has been asked a great many times by the prosecution that question is this why did dorsey retain Verdell in his employ after the twentieth of june eighteen eighty one these gentlemen tell you that it is evidence of guilt that he did it 
i will tell you why he did it at that time the public mind was almost infinitely excited on this question at that time the public was ready to believe anything it had its mouth wide open like a young robin ready for worms or shingle nails it made no difference anything that dropped in every newspaper was charging that these defendants were guilty that stephen w dorsey was a conspirator that millions had been taken from the treasury and there were nearly as many mistakes in the press then as in the speech of mr bliss now but i can excuse that because it was before the evidence now what was mr dorsey to do in the then state of the public mind that man no matter how bad he was how base he was had the power to have him indicted that man could have gone before the grand jury and had mr dorsey or any other public man indicted in the then state of excitement and feeling of the public what was the result of his going even to james and mcveigh i believe mr turner says that on account of the statement of this man rodell he turner was turned out of his office that is the effect what became of mcgrew what became of lily what became of lake what became of twenty or thirty other officials upon whose reputation this man had breathed the poison of slander stephen w dorsey at that time knew that that man in the then state of public excitement was powerful for mischief that man made the affidavit of june eighteen eighty one at the request of james w bosler as he himself says and swore that he went to the government simply to find out the government's secrets swore that he was still upon the side of stephen w dorsey took back what he had said and swore that it was a lie the question then was what to do with him stephen w dorsey made up his mind not to do anything more just to let him alone just to let him stay as he was that was the wise course it was the course that any wise man in my judgment would have pursued under the circumstances what else could he do let him alone let him alone he did not at that time expect he would ever be indicted he shrank from an indictment as every sensible man does because when you have indicted a man you have put a stain upon him that even the verdict of not guilty does not altogether remove he did not want that stain he was a man of power he was a man of position a man of social and political standing a man wielding as much influence as any other one man in the united states he did not wish to be indicted he did not wish his reputation to be soiled and stained and so he allowed that man to stay where he was he may have made a mistake but whether mistake or not that is what he did there is another question why did we fail to produce our books and papers i will tell you the notice to produce them was given to us on the thirteenth day of february we had noticed curious motions two days afterwards mr rodell went on the stand what did they want the books and papers for for mr rodell to look at why did he want to look at the books and papers to stake out his testimony he hated to depend upon his memory we took the responsibility of letting the witness swear to the contents of the books and papers and let them call that secondary evidence we took that responsibility rather than to furnish the books and papers to be looked at by that man in order that he might make no mistakes in his testimony 
what happened afterwards justified our course if we had shown to him the books and papers and checks and stubs do you think he would have made any mistake about that seven thousand five hundred dollar check would he have said that he went with dorsey and that dorsey drew the money and that he looked over his shoulder and that then he and dorsey walked down to the post office department if he had known that that check was drawn to his order if he had known before he swore that he endorsed that check would he have said that he went down and got the money himself he would not have said that dorsey did he would have made no mistakes there he would not have been driven into the corner of saying stub or stubs checkbook or checkbooks amount or amounts no sir and that one thing justified absolutely the wisdom of our course then the court decided that having failed to produce our books on notice and allowed the other side to introduce secondary evidence of their contents we would not be allowed then to produce them i insisted that we had the right then to produce them and the court decided that we had not we took the responsibility of refusing and we took that responsibility because we made up our minds that we would not allow that man to look over the books checks and stubs for the purpose of manufacturing his testimony the court where did you offer to produce the books mr merrick where did you offer the production of the books that is just what i was about to ask mr carpenter the court said we could not mr merrick where did you make the offer the court i want to know mr carpenter mr ingersoll did not say he made the offer mr merrick i think he did the court i think he did mr carpenter just read it mr stenographer he says nothing of the kind the stenographer reading i insisted that we had the right then to produce them and the court decided that we had not mr ingersoll that is exactly what i say the court the court did not give any intimation at that time but after that point in the trial had passed several days several weeks i think the attention of the court was called to this question and the court remarked in the course of the opinion that it understood the law to be that after a party upon whom notice had been given to produce books had failed to produce the books and the other side had given secondary evidence then the court would not allow the party having the books to produce them for the purpose of contradicting the secondary evidence mr ingersoll that is all i claim the court but there was no such offer made so far as i recollect mr ingersoll why should we make the offer after your honor had decided that we could not do it mr merrick i will answer the question because whether it would have been accepted or not was not a question for the counsel of the government when the offer was made and again the learned counsel will recollect that after the notice was given when s w dorsey was on the stand on cross-examination i demanded those books and those stubs and he asked leave to consult his counsel the court denied that request and then there was a peremptory refusal to produce any book or any paper the court oh yes mr ingersoll and mr davidge repeatedly announced to the court that they were not going to produce books to assist the prosecution mr ingersoll yes i said that twenty times 
and the court as i understood it held that after we had refused to produce the books and driven the other party to secondary evidence we could not then produce the books the court you made no offer to produce the books mr ingersoll i resisted the opinion of the court and made the best argument i could but the court said that was not the law the court the remark of the court arose upon an argument on the part of mr ingersoll and if i am not mistaken upon the effect of the refusal to produce the books and papers mr ingersoll contending that there was no presumption against his client on account of the refusal to produce the books and papers and that the jury ought to be instructed that the only effect of refusing to produce the books and papers was to leave the case upon the secondary evidence mr ingersoll i am not referring to that discussion nor to that decision of your honor i am referring to the decision you made during the trial the court that was the only occasion since this trial began in which the court referred to that rule of law which denied the right to introduce primary evidence for the purpose of contradicting the secondary evidence after the primary evidence had been withheld in the first instance mr ingersoll of course i am not absolutely certain i never am but i will endeavor to find in the record exactly what you said on that subject and now in order that we may be perfectly correct and in order to show too how easy it is to be mistaken mr merrick just said upon that very subject of the books and papers that while mr dorsey was upon the stand he asked leave to consult his counsel if mr merrick will read the testimony he will find that mr dorsey made that remark when he was asked about the affidavit of june twentieth eighteen eighty one mr merrick you are right mr ingersoll that just shows how easy it is to make a mistake when it comes to a matter of recollection mr merrick i think it was upon a question of the insertion of the change in the character of the affidavit its being addressed to the president and when i asked him if he had not made the change he asked leave to consult his counsel for the moment i thought it was upon the books but the substance still remains that on the question of the books i asked him on his cross-examination and the counsel will state his recollection to be the same about the stubs and the books and called upon him to produce them and the counsel replied we will not mr ingersoll i presume i did i made that reply a good many times mr merrick will the counsel be frank enough to state when that decision was made mr ingersoll which decision mr merrick when he was on the stand on cross-examination mr ingersoll and i said we would not produce them mr merrick after the testimony in chief and riddell was gone mr ingersoll then i said we would not produce them and now i will say that the decision of the court was made before that time that we could not produce them and if i do not show it then i will publicly take it back the court i do not think you can show it mr ingersoll if i do not then i will beg your honor's pardon and if i do if i do now i think what happened afterwards in this case with that very witness justifies the course that we pursued 
he also stated at the time that we had i believe some twenty thousand pages of letters on all possible subjects to a great number of people we knew that there was a spirit abroad and some of it in a part of the prosecution to find something against somebody else somewhere we made up our minds that our private books and correspondence never should be ransacked by this department of justice we took the consequences and we are willing to take them we say that the inference from our refusal is an inference of fact and must be decided by the jury and is not an inference of law we have been asked a good many times why we did not put james w bosler on the stand the prosecution subpoenaed mr bosler they appeared to have an affection for him they subpoenaed him and he came here afterwards they issued an attachment for him they had him arrested at midnight and brought here he gave some testimony and you will find it on page two thousand six hundred and eleven mr merrick i do not know that there was an attachment mr ingersoll you know you have a right to prove things by circumstances now it is said that he put the marshal out of the house i think that is evidence tending to show that an attachment was issued mr kerr and kept him out with a club the court i understood also that mr dorsey kicked somebody else out of his house about that same time mr ingersoll oh yes it has been a very lively term of court there were two very important things that they were to prove by mr bosler and they were patting him on the back here for weeks friendship sprang up between them it was a very young plant at first but the bosler ivy grew upon the oak of the prosecution i saw him sitting here everything delightful the prosecution i hoped began to flatter itself that mr bosler was on their side i hoped that was so finally they put mr bosler on the stand what did they want to prove by him that dorsey wrote a letter to him on the thirteenth of may eighteen seventy nine telling how much money he had given to brady that is one thing they wanted to prove by him the second thing was that Riddell had written a letter to Bosler, I believe, on the 20th of May or 22nd of May, 1880, stating that he, Riddell, had been subpoenaed to go before the Congressional Committee and take his books and papers, that he got very much frightened, that he had taken the advice of Brady and got a very valuable suggestion from Brady, which he was going to follow. They wanted to prove that by Mr. Bosler verdell had already sworn that dorsey sent a letter to bosler on the thirteenth of may eighteen seventy nine verdell had sworn to the contents of that letter that the contents were that he had paid brady so much money and etc which you remember and then that he in eighteen eighty had written a letter to mr bosler and i believe he pretended to have a copy of it now here comes bosler's testimony on page twenty six eleven question have you made a search among your papers to find a letter alleged to have been written to you by stephen w dorsey and dated on or about the thirteenth of may eighteen seventy nine yes sir that is the letter that Rurdell swore about question have you searched answer i have question did you find it no sir 
question have you made search for a letter purporting to have been written by you to him and dated on or about the twenty second of may eighteen eighty yes sir question did you find that letter i did not the court was there ever such a letter bosler replied there never was such a letter received by me now there is the testimony of mr bosler and on that testimony the two letters of may thirteenth eighteen seventy nine and may twenty second eighteen eighty turn to dust and ashes now they say why didn't you put bosler on not much necessity of mr bosler after that and besides gentlemen i believe i will take you into my confidence just a little bit the evidence of Rodell as to the affidavit of June twentieth, eighteen eighty one, and the affidavit of July thirteenth, eighteen eighty two, an affidavit in which he swore that there was nothing against Mr. Bosler, an affidavit that was made apparently for the benefit of Bosler, all that evidence, the evidence of Mr. Stephen W. Dorsey upon those questions, advertised the prosecution that Mr. Bosler knew of many circumstances that he was present a portion of the time and i did not know but finally the prosecution would get so much confidence in mr bosler that they would call him i was hoping they would they did not it did not work quite as i expected that is all there is about that this ends chapter four part twenty one of twenty four